He shoots, he draws is sponsored by the Westcott Rapid Box Switch. Isn't it time you made the switch? Do it today at www.fjwestcott.com backslash switch. Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design with your hosts, Glenn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hello and welcome back to a new episode of He Shoots, He Draws. Now, I'm on my own for this particular episode because at the time of putting this out, Dave is travelling to Portland in Oregon with some work and I'll be meeting up with him in one week's time in LA at Adobe Mac. So I'm in the hot seat for this one uh, and I kind of want to tell you that this episode is completely different to anything that we've put out in any of the previous episodes up to this point. This is nothing to do with photography, nothing to do with design and nothing to to do with creativity. However, I do think that this is a really important message for everybody, no matter what you do, no matter where you are. So this particular episode is an interview that I've done with a friend of mine for, blimey, it must be 40 years now, a guy called Nathan Black. And Nathan was the guy in school uh, he was always like a couple of years uh, above me in school, but he was the kid that everybody wanted to be. He was good looking, he was he had muscles, he was strong, he could do wheelies on his bike, he had all the girls after him. He was the kid that everybody wanted to be. But in later life, Nathan has had some incredible hard times physically and medically to deal with. And it's that's the reason I wanted to interview Nathan. Nathan has been a renal patient. He's had two kidney transplants. But what I was absolutely intrigued about and wanted to talk to Nathan about was having a positive state of mind. So that's what Nathan's going to talk to you about in this. And that's why I think that this is really important for you to listen to. Because this isn't some guy on a stage in a privileged position saying all the usual go, go out there and get it done and fake it till you make it kind of comments. This is reality. And I think, as I said in a previous episode, that I think we do need to see and hear more truth, honesty uh, out there in this industry to help everybody. Because sometimes when things aren't going your way, it can feel like it's just you that's going through it. So I want to introduce you to my friend Nathan. I think he's got an incredible story. He has been through dark times, but as you'll hear him say in this particular episode, through darkness, there is always light and you just need to stick in there to see it through to the end. It's a very powerful, very emotive, very moving episode, uh, but I really love you to stick around and get to know my friend Nathan as I do. He's a friend that thankfully I've now been back in touch with after a number of uh, years of gap but thankfully, one good thing of Facebook has brought us together again. So uh, I love this guy to bits, uh, and I think you will too after listening to this. So I'm sat here on my own. Let's just get this one going in the usual way, and it'll be, Nathan, who are you? I'm Nathan. Um, I am 50-year-old male. Um, live in Burntwood in Staffordshire, and I've recently had my second kidney transplant, which was May last year. Okay. Father of three children, um, two girls, and my youngest is Seb, who's nearly 13. Well, we've, we've known each other for a long time. I was trying to work this out, actually, because we obviously did this interview a while back, and the audio that I did wasn't that good. So that's why we're doing this one again now. But I was trying to work out at the time, how long have we known each other? It it's, can't be that far off. 
It must be nearly 40 years. It must be nearly. Well, it's quite ironic that you, that you say that because we're, we're actually sat in the place where we first met all those years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're sat in my parents' house in Burntwood. And um, blimey, I don't know. It, it's got to be, we must have been five, six, yeah. something like that. So it's, it's a good while ago. It's 40 plus years. Yeah, no, yeah. no, sorry, it's 20 plus years. Sorry. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 40 plus years at least. <laughs> Well, listen. I, I obviously I want to, you know what I want to get you on the on the podcast. But for those folks who are listening, you mentioned there about having your second uh, kidney transplant, and it's all the the kind of story about what you have been through. Which I think, although this isn't anything to do with photography or design or anything like that whatsoever, I think it's a really good story for us to talk about and for you to explain what you've been through because of this this kind of mental strength thing that you've had. And we've talked about what you went through. You know, several times now. It's been quite emotional when we've talked about it. Um, but I want to kind of get, if we can kind of rewind so that people have an understanding of exactly what you've been through um, and then we'll kind of just pick it up from there. So how, I mean, you say you're 50 now. Yeah. When and how did you first start to realise that something wasn't quite right and you were, there was something medically that needed to be sorted? I think I need to take you back to before then because um, the those feelings that you explain were the back end of 2012, the beginning of 2013. So before that, and all through my childhood, as you know, um, I was a sportsman, mm. all sorts of sports. Where, as long as it was active, that's what I did. Um, ultimately, I ended up playing football, and then um, I became a competitive bodybuilder, competed in the British Championships, twice um, and I knew my body inside out in 2005 I competed in my first Britain um, I'd placed second at my qualifier um, and I'd gone to the Britain in 2005 I only know now from looking back through the medical records that it was in 2005 that the, med- that the kidney illness had got into the kidney See, I didn't even know that when we first mm. talked about this. Yeah. You didn't even mention that. Well, obviously, we as bodybuilders would water deplete and fat deplete. Yeah, your internal organs are protected by a layer of fat. At four percent and above, they're fully protected. Under four percent, that there's there's not enough fat in the body to take any fat from anywhere else. So it actually comes from around those organs. Now, I was on stage at 3.5% body fat. So my internal organs were exposed. The little, it was only just a kidney illness, a water infection that got in. And then obviously you start to re-eat and re-feed and you grow again. So from 2005 to 2012, late 2012, my kidneys were fully protected with the layer of fat, but they were rotting away inside. Because of what happened in 2005? Yeah. Right, okay. Because I'd, I'd water depleted, so the, the system was bone dry. There wasn't yeah. enough fat protecting the organs. Right. So I was prone to illness, which is, but it was, it was unknown to me. The kidneys are uh, about the size of a, uh, my fist, so a grown man's fist. You've got two of them. And they're made up of millions and millions of little filters. Now, unlike the liver, when the filters die in the kidney, they stay dead. They don't regenerate. So over the next eight years, my kidneys, both of them, are rotting away. I started to notice in the 
um, in the summer of 2012, so June, July time, when I was actually getting ready for my my last hurrah, if you like, mm-hmm. in, the, in the bodybuilding world, I was going to compete in 2013. Mm-hmm. So my diet had started to change. My training was really, really heavy. There was lots and lots of food in there. I was consuming probably 6,000 calories a day, um, loads of protein, loads of carbs. Um, but I started to get very watery, which I would do normally in the off-season. My ankles were swelling up. My wrists were swelling up. I was getting heavier. But at the same time, I was getting weaker. So the the benchmark weights that I'd, I'd got in my training mm. were starting to drop, but feel as heavy. I thought maybe it was the intensity of the training. So I had a rest, two weeks off, changed the diet, things returned as they were. So I carried on. But then quite quickly, it started to drop again. So the squat, for example, had five plates aside. Mm. I was fully suited up with belts and knee straps. That was heavy. Then two weeks later, four plates felt the same as five plates. And so it went on and so it went on until I got down to two plates that felt the same as five plates. And then you start to scratch your head then. Yeah, that's like a warm-up weight for you. Yeah, Yeah. it would would be insignificant. And you think, something's not right here. So it was at that stage that I sort of had to have a a rethink. One of the symptoms of renal failure is either you stop going to the toilet, so you stop peeing, Mm. or you go the opposite way and it's just like an open... open tap if you like it just yeah. goes in and comes straight out that's what I'd got um, so I I'd made some adjustments to my diet and still nothing happened so I had to um, I had to go and see the doctor I said Look, something's not right here I've got the shivers and the shakes I can't stop going to the toilet I feel tired I feel weak um, I'm getting terrible cramps so they took a blood test and that's when they found that my kidneys were failing. Mm. Um, so um, they thought I'd got the neurovirus to start with mm. because that was hanging around. And they gave me some antibiotics. The, the, the ricochet effect of an antibiotic is a kick into the kidney. Mm-hmm. Because unbeknown to us then, but I'd only got around about an 8% kidney function from around about 98%. So this little antibiotic that they gave me for a week battered the kidney, what was left of it. So what was supposed to help actually was even worse, the worst thing it could have been. There's something called a a GFR, which in in layman's terms is the the flow rate of the kidney. Right. Between 30 and 15%, you can halt things you can stop things slow them down significantly with oral drugs on the other side of 15 you're on dialysis but if you catch it at the top end of the 15 so the 15 to 10 if you like Mm. you can slow it down a little bit further because mine had gone to eight and again unbeknown to us there was no way back so i went back after the 10 days still no improvement it gave me a more powerful antibiotic (laughs) Which was which was like a you know a, a big uppercut to the chin, yeah. smashed what was left of the kidney to pieces. So I ended up um, with two point six percent 
flow rate, which was pretty much none. Yeah. Um, and then I was just admitted to um, one of the local hospitals um, after a few tests, put on to emergency dialysis. And uh, that's where I stayed for 12 months until my mum donated the first one. So, okay, so you... You say that kind of, I know we've talked about this before and you sort of talk about that and there I was and I'll put on dialysis, but mentally now, here you are, somebody who's used to training really hard and competing and then all of a sudden this seems to come like a bolt out of the blue because obviously you're unaware of what's happened in 2005. You're just dieting and getting really, really ripped. But now all of a sudden, 2012, 2013, this is happening to you. How How is that mentally affecting you? Because being a bodybuilder, being a sportsman, you are inherently strong-minded. That's mm. just the way it is. But how how is that now affecting you? In that initial stages, at diagnosis and meeting um, surgeons and nurses and renal consultants, etc. Um, the only way I can explain it is like a light going on and off. Your your life as you know it stops. It isn't like a broken leg that's going to take six weeks. Who, who knows how long this is just something that I'll carry with me for the rest of my life and there was many times that if it wasn't for my parents or my girlfriend at the time and my children I wouldn't have known what had been said to me because I'd get to a certain stage and somebody would say something mm. say the dialysis machine or something or home dialysis that the lights would go off I'd switch off I didn't hear I couldn't hear anything else is that because it was kind of going through a uh, a state of uh, disbelief yes why me yes. this can't be happening mm-hmm. and so on definitely right. definitely um and the refusal to accept that this is me yeah, yeah yeah it's it's a bizarre situation because you do get a sort of a third third party out of body experience when you're sort of like watching yourself mm. um because immediately you think well how am I going to go to work? How am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to go on holiday? What am I going to do with the kids? Mm. Who's going to walk the dogs? Mm. All these things flash through your head. You know, the last thing that you're really interested in is how are they going to fix you? How are they going to treat you? Mm. So those were the immediate things. And then I think once once you get to that stage of acceptance, if you like, and to some people, it, it's never you never get that stage of acceptance. Um, all that stage of appreciation if you like understanding as to where exactly you are now once I got there which I have to say was probably I think in the initial stages the competitor came out in me once I'd settled down and I understood what the treatment was and I'd had some medicines to you know, settle things down mm. I I was I was that terminally ill patient that said right then you ain't beating me I'm going to crack on and I'm just going to carry this little monkey on my back mm-hmm. and I'm going to work as I did before, maybe slightly different, but I'm going to carry on. You know, I've got two choices at this stage, to sit in the corner and cry and worry about it, or to put on a different suit, put on some different shoes and dance to a different tune, if you like. But you must you must have gone through that initial sat in the corner, you know. I'll cry, yeah. I, I cried many, many times, many days when... And maybe I skipped over that, but it would at least be 12 months, Glyn, at least... What for you to go from that that stage of being in the corner, yeah, to then be this person saying, "Right, you ain't going to beat me." Yeah, wow. And, and and not twelve months of sitting in the corner, you know, totally. There'd be intermittent periods where I, w- I would get up and mm. shake myself off and crack on, but mm. until yeah, twelve months from start to where I eventually sort of the mind switched on mm. and 
the illness was something that I held a hand with all the way through. And it was my passenger, if you like. And I talked to him and I spoke to him and, you know, we joked and stuff. But previous to that, it took me along. I followed him, if you like. Mm. And, and I think that is how I dealt with him, it. I call it him. Mm. Because I realised that he wasn't my governor. He was coming with me for the ride. So then the positive side of me sort of kicked in. I had to change. I couldn't do what I used to do and how I used to do it. I could still do things, but I had to do it in a different way. Change the suit, if you like. So mm. that's, that, that's what I did. Um, and, I mean, I have a tattoo on my arm. It says, only the strong <laughs> are able to make the sacrifices to succeed. And, and that was something that I put on my arm when I was getting ready for the 2005 shows. Right. And I just keep looking at it. We're looking at it now. And it is, you have two choices. I, I, I'm a great believer that after great darkness comes great light. Mm -hmm. And to get to that light, you have to endure. And you can only become, or you can only step into the light once you've endured. And I've endured and I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the light now. I must admit, it's, it's, it's something that I've always, I mean, I've never had, you know, touch wood, I, at this point in my life, I've never had something that you would say would be life-threatening. But I think we all know, obviously I know you, but on the outside of you, we all know somebody that's touched by it in some way. And one thing I've always kind of, I'm trying to get into my head is when, when you are told, let's say it's like incredibly like final news, do you know what I mean? I know what I'm talking about here. I've also, how do you mentally deal with that? That's always something that's intrigued me. There's two things I'm really intrigued with, with the mind. One of them is how people go to be successful. What's, what separates them to be successful? The other thing is how on earth does somebody get so strong-minded to say, I'm going to deal with this when it's something so life-threatening? I've met um, some of my friends have had cancer. And I think most of us, as we get older, we... we we know somebody, whether it's a close family member. And I think when people say terminal illness, immediately they think cancer. Yes. Because yeah. that's one of the ones that is a terminal. A renal failure is if it's left untreated. So it's a liver failure if it's left untreated. Mm. But a renal failure is one of those manageable terminal illnesses, if you like. Um, if I was to stop taking my anti-rejection drugs, within 10 days I'd be in renal failure. If I went on to dialysis and stopped, refused dialysis two weeks and I'd be dead. So that's the that's the monkey that I carry with me mm. on my back. But from a terminal illness, mental position, if you like, um, there's almost a sense of freedom. It, you, you, you frown. Yeah, yeah. And, and from a cancer patient's point of view, you're poorly, you're diagnosed, you're treated. You don't know as to where your journey takes you. You're, you're constantly moving forward to a different crossroads. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I, do I stay here for the next bus? What do I do? You don't need that anymore because you're told you've mm -hmm. got cancer. It's not terminal. Don't worry. We'll treat it. Off you go. And you, you can carry on then. Mm. And much the same with me. I didn't know what was wrong with me at the time. So... What, what, is it because I'm training too hard? Is it because I'm eating too much? Is it because I'm not resting enough? What, what's wrong with me? This isn't right. You have a blood test. 
sorry, you, you don't have a blood test. You go and see a doctor. They say it's this. So here, here's the medicine for it. Well, that doesn't work. So what is it then? Mm. I'm feeling worse. Mm. Oh, it's this. Have some stronger medicine. It's not that. You have a blood test. You have renal failure. Yes, there's that abandonment, if you like, during that time as to where am I? Where do I go? But you're free of your burden now. You're free of the first monkey, if you like. The first monkey's gone. You know what it is now. So you've got that choice now of what you do with this new friend. Mm. Do you accept it and do your due diligence and research it and find out what's about to happen? Listen to what's being said now because you can, because you know what it is. And then, then deal with it because you're free now to deal with it. You mm. know what you've got to do. You know you've got to go to dialysis three times a week. You know you've got to have radiotherapy or chemotherapy. You know how your life is set up now. Mm. And it's like, um, I read a passage from a lad called Jeff Thompson and he said about crabs. Crabs, when they lose their shell, become vulnerable because they shed their shell. Mm. They go into hiding so that their new shell can form. And once their new shell has formed, they come back out onto the ocean floor because they've got their armour back. Mm. That's the analogy because... You, you know my past. You know I'm a bit of a roughy tufty sort of chap. <laughs> and I lost my shell. But my shell didn't just break off. Mine was just ripped off my back. So I was vulnerable. I was exposed. So I went into the reef, if you like, which was the corner. Mm. And I grew stronger. And I, and I learned what was wrong. So I came back out with a different shell. It wasn't the pink crabby shell. It was like, got like a rainbow on the back or something. Um, so I came out a different me. I came out the same me, but a different yeah, me. I get what you're saying. I'd got a new set of armor on, but I, I, I'd I'd now got my comfort zone back, my protection, if you like. Mm. Um, and that's how I dealt with it all through, because no matter how I knew that one day I would get, I'd be sat here. <laughs> and me and you'd be talking, having not seen each other yeah. for I don't know how many years. Yeah. I yeah. knew a transplant would come. Yeah. I knew that it would come one day. Well, well talking about that then, because you, you, when you first mentioned this, you said about um, your mom, Adrian, who I've obviously known since I was a little kid. Um, tell us about what happened there with your mom, because your mom did the ultimate that a parent would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to just explain to us what happened there? Um, during those first 12 months, there was, um, there was lots of testing to A, find out. Well, there's lots of options first. There was the live donor option. There was going on the waiting list for a deceased donor. Um, So my friends, my family, yourself even, offered to donate. It's not as simple as just giving an organ. The organ's got to match me, so it's got to be blood related, either blood and tissue related or tissue related at a minimum, then they can change the blood group. So four or five, my mum... Um, my partner, a couple of friends, they tested. And my mum was only the match. She was only a tissue match, but they were able to swap the blood around. Yeah. And that was that was in the May, I think, of the 2013. And that process then took about 12 months for my mum's medical checks to be complete before mm. I could be transplanted. Um and that again was another. That was almost like the monkey had gone then, because I was, I was just waiting on the train. I was just going through the countryside, 
ticket collector's been and stamped my ticket. I'm just enjoy the ride now. Mm. And I did. We got to the transplant and I had the transplant. And um, um, it was, seemed to be fine. That was it. I was recovering a toxicity level. My body toxicity level previous to the transplant was 1,200. A normal average person, you sit there, Glenn, with, an average, with a toxicity of about 120, 100. Mine was in the 1,200s. Wow. Four days after the transplant, I think on the day of the transplant, I was 900. And then about four or five days later, I was down to 400. And then it was just dropping, dropping, dropping. But it stopped at around mm. 200. Wouldn't drop to below, which is where they wanted it to be. Um, so they did some checks, did some scans, and they found out that I'd got a kink in the renal artery, which is the, what supplies the blood to the kidney. There was, a, there was an operation planned for, I think it was April. Um, yeah, I think it was April. To put a stent in, to open this renal artery up and let more blood flow through. And the options that I was given was, I, it could stay as it was in situ with no stent, and I'd get five to eight years out of the kidney, or I could have the stent in and I can get 10 to 15 out. So we're given those options. Yeah. It's a simple operation. Yeah. You know, simple operation to them. There's a one in, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's something like one in a thousand chance of it going wrong. Um, so that was it. Sign the consent form. Let's crack on. So I had the, um, I had the, <laughs> I had the um I had the stent put in and um I um I woke up after surgery and and, and after surgery I do struggle as most people do major surgery like general anesthetic mm. um I couldn't go to the toilet and but that wasn't that wasn't abnormal. But back in the late two thousand and twelve, there was I had the same symptoms. I was getting cramp, and I was I got a metallic taste in my mouth. I my my nose had started to bleed. I got shivers. I, I knew where I was. Um, I knew I was in renal failure again. So I remember, because obviously we'd, we'd not been in touch for a while, but thankfully the one good thing about Facebook is that it can kind mm. of like rekindle friendships, do you yeah. know what I mean? And and I remember sort of seeing all this kind of going on from a distance, you know, what, you know the things I've mentioned to you that, that I wanted to do for you. But I remember seeing you, you would do these things where you'd like a daily report, yeah, I'm down to the, this, yeah, the, yeah. it's gone down to this level, it's gone down to that level, and there's all these comments going, way to go, way to go. And obviously you're thinking, fantastic. And then you know, once you think you know you've you've had your stamp, your, your ticket stamped, let's go. We're we're recovering now. Then your mom does what she's done, and then then this happens to you. So mm. I, I can't, you know, just when you think right, I'm mentally strong, I'm dealing with this, we're happy. Then this happens again, and I can't. I just, again, I just can't imagine how somebody deals with that unless you're in that position. I suppose you never can understand that, can you? But. To then having to be strong again, thinking, "Oh my God, why is this happening to me?" That's that's what I find incredible that you're able to deal with it. To be honest with you, I didn't deal with the, that one very well. To be honest, initially, anyway, because 
I um, I mentioned to the nurse but what was I couldn't go to the toilet she said just keep an eye on it let me know so of course 20, 24 hours went past still nothing then the next morning when I couldn't go mm. I literally I just remember lying flat on the bed you know looking at the ceiling into nothing and then looked up again and at the team at the bottom of the bed was the surgeon the anaesthetist yeah. they'd got this well, magical scanning machine at the bottom of my bed it was like a football it was like a, a crowd of people at the bottom of my bed and you know when you think aye aye yeah this isn't normal yeah. what can I do for you lot then yeah um, so I was off for an angiogram um, just to see what was going on blood wise and I remember sitting um, the, walking down the corridor a couple of hundred yards and I had no idea who was walking past me You've seen it in the films where the 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 horizon narrows mm-hmm. and everything is tunnel visioned. If yeah. you like, that's exactly what I was. I couldn't even tell you where I was. I could have been walking down the corridor naked, and everybody else could have been naked for like I just I was just concentrating on the sign that was sticking out the wall saying angiogram. And um, I got there. I remember sitting on the chair, and because of the shivers, I remember I was leaning on the wall with my head on the wall, and it was just vibrating off the wall as it was as it was. Um, mm. as it was shaking and um, the, the the surgeon who was with me so you, obviously you know you, you, I haven't got a nurse and I've got a surgeon with yeah. me so you think okay, that says a lot that yeah. says a lot um, and she held my hand and she said um, it'll be alright I said no, it's okay I said I'm, I'm in renal failure and I am so um, I had the scan and um, that was it there was a kinky so they sent in a clot buster that broke that down that only lasted about 12 hours, another clot formed, and then a subsequent another clot formed over the space of 36 hours. And it was, um, it was, I think it was about midnight, one o'clock in the morning when the third clot was found. And uh, I was in the, um, in the theatre, but under, only under sedation, not under any anaesthetic. And um, bearing in mind what time it was, I think it was Sunday night, and it was one midnight wave time it mm. was I looked to the right behind the screen and there was the uh, Professor Simon Ball the head of blood at the QE on a Sunday well Monday morning my surgeon the other surgeon the anaesthetist and the guy conducting the angiogram you could tell they'd just got up and you, you know when you look across and you think hmm aye aye yeah <laughs> someone's yeah. up here yeah, yeah, yeah and that was it they, they, they told me that it had failed and um then again, I was, I have no idea what was said the next couple mm. of days, other than the, the, the operation that I just had had to be done again, but in reverse, mm. bearing in mind that I still got some of the staples and stitches in from the first one. So it was, I was just opened up and it was taken out there right. and pretty much there and then, well, the next morning. So follow, following that then, it's because uh, obviously to get to the stage there where you know that your mom was a tissue match, mm-hmm. you've, there's been friends, there's been family members, and, whatever, and she's the one that was the match. So obviously now you've had to go through this and then you're thinking, well, who is that? Mm. Who is it? So then I guess now, and I remember this when we spoke about it before, it was the long waiting game scene, yeah. just hoping. And it's kind of weird, isn't it? You're kind of hoping for... In, in some ways a misfortune that will yes. allow that there is going to be a donor yes but I remember and it was quite a funny thing you mentioned to me because obviously you said there was a friend of yours this guy who came in and he was like right you can have mine do you want to tell people about it because it, I mean it was a funny moment when you that talked was, about this that was amazing that was a guy called Stuart Bentley yeah. um, 
a friend from um, from the gym, and then I'd helped him um, get a job at a place where I worked. And he always said to me, he said, um, I owe you, Naif. I said, no, you don't owe me, mate. I said, I've just done you a favour. Don't worry about it. So um, he'd seen what had happened. Yeah. And he came up to visit me. Um, this was, um, I don't think I'd had the kidney out at this stage. I might have done. I'm not sure. Um, Saturday afternoon, it was sunny outside. Um, and he came up with, um, with his wife. And uh, he said... How you doing? He said, uh, right then. He said, you'd have one of my kidneys then. <laughs> I said, what, what? He said, yeah, you can have one of mine. And uh, I said, oh, that's amazing. I said, but you, you, you've got to speak to these lot first. He said, no, no, let's, let's sort it out now. So literally a nurse came in or a doctor, I can't remember what it was. He said, I want to give him one of my kidneys. Yeah. That's great. You need to speak to the team. Then he said, no, 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 I want to do it now. <laughs> and he was literally just prepared to go to theatre and get it done now. And this is all because he's saying, right, you did me a favour, I'm yeah. repaying it. Wow. Stu is old school. Yeah. You know, your, your word is your bond, your, your shake is your seal, if you like. And yeah. if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to repay you, yeah. then I'm going to repay you. And here he was, it was his turn to repay me. Um, so <laughs> once once the euphoria had calmed down and, and you know, sort of Stu slept on it and I was out of hospital, we sort of, we met up again and he's still even more enthused about doing this, giving this kidney. So he went through the, um, or he embarked on the same workup that mum had got. And now here I was again, before I even stepped into the doldrums, if you like, the corner again, I didn't have to. I'd got, a, I'd got someone who was going to donate, mm. so that picked me up straight away. It turns out he's a match as well. <laughs> so off we go down the down the, 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 the workup route. So he went down the workup route, and at each stage we got passed on to the next stage. So I'm just thinking, how lucky am I? I haven't even got to worry about it again. I'm ticket, there you go, mate. Yeah, yeah. And we're off enjoying the countryside. And that was it. And that took about 12 months, maybe a bit longer. Um, but then we got right to the very last stage, which is seeing the surgeons, seeing the medical team for your sign-off. And then they told him that he couldn't donate anymore because he's got irritable bowel syndrome. And when they donate or when somebody donates, you need to be very healthy mm-hmm. so that they don't take a healthy person and make yeah. them poorly. This was going to inevitably happen with Stu because they'd move his bowels. And your bowels are one of the organs internally that don't recover very well. Normally, or frequently should I say after a donation people can get IBS because the bowels moved about if Stu's already got it they can't do yeah, it yeah 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 so now it, now this was difficult this was really difficult because I've got no more books to read anymore there was nobody left as it were mm. all my friends had come forward and the friends that were going to donate had been excluded because they weren't a match I couldn't go back to my mum obviously and um, my partner at the time she wasn't a match either. I've got nobody. Now this was difficult. This was difficult. Now where do I go? I'm stuck on dialysis. I'm waiting for that call. Um, and some people are still waiting for that call 15, 20 years on. Some people are lucky and get it within a week. It was a difficult, it was a difficult time. This was mm. a dark time for me. I needed some um, professional help. So the psychologist at the hospital helped me because I needed to exhume this experience. Is that something that you asked for or is that something that no, they, they said ins- you will they have this? they insisted on it. Right. 
because you need to be in the mental mentally right place for the next time you know just in case the same thing happens again mm. so i had to go i had to pretty much unstitch the last two years maybe even further back three years to I suppose confess if you like or just to, to get rid of all the things that you're thinking about and what could possibly go wrong mm. um and it was during these times that i found just who i am and my strength if you like um again i was lost when the transplant failed and then stuart failed but then I learned a lot about myself and a lot about life and a lot about the value of today and how tomorrow can change and the friendship that you and I have got and rekindling that and mm. my children and just how the small things in life are the really important things. You know, through our lives, we concentrate too much on the Bentley the Rolex, the, the flying first class, but your Bentley will get you to the same destination as my clapped out Ford Escort. So the destination's the same. My my Amiga on my wrist will tell the same time as your Timex. So time is still the same. Mm. So it's all relative. It doesn't matter the wealth that you've got. Everything else remains the same. Time remains the same. The destination remains the same. How you journey there is what's in your head. Is, it, is, so, this, so is we, this the new you or is this what you always thought? Is that what you're telling me? Th this is a combination of, I, I think this is the upgrade to the me that we spoke about last time. Right. We can, we can, we focus too much on the, the with, when you haven't got an illness or when you haven't got something that changes you, we focus too much on the end goal. We focus too much on the materialistic wealth, if you like, the monetary wealth. But what we forget to focus on is the life wealth that we miss the, out the on. The journey, the enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So skip that because that's the upgraded bit now. So during that period from when Stuart got, said he wasn't, on the, wasn't with the programme anymore, to, and I spent three years on dialysis then, I was always positive and I've always prepared to just go with the new journey, if you like. But this taught me more about how to appreciate today, how to appreciate the the things about other people. When we spoke about how I see people differently mm -hmm. now um, and how more open I am to the world, if you like, and, and, and what's before me. Um, I know we spoke last time about how I judge people. Yeah. I was very judgmental. Um, I think, I won't say judgmental, but very guarded about who I would um, let into my life or mm -hmm. share stories with or anything else. So for me, prior to 2012, when I was the normal me, I would meet you in the gym, say, for example, or the bar or whatever, and we'd shake hands and have a chat and stuff. You would start off with an empty tank on the trust side of things, if yeah. you like. You would have to, and I, I, again, I don't know how you would judge me, but this is how I was judging you, if you like. Mm. You would have to do things to convince me that you're all right, you are. <laughs> yeah, actually, that story that you told me, that does check out. So, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not Billy, uh, you know what. Mm -hmm. He's, um, 
And then, and then after time, I'd think, yeah, Glyn's all right, but I ain't seen him for ages. Where's he gone? Oh, he moved away. I missed an opportunity then mm. to, to maybe gain a friend. And, and not, not, I'm not, you know, just sort of metaphorically, it doesn't yes, have to be yeah, you, it can be yeah. anybody, you yeah. know, it can be a work colleague or something. And actually, before you get to, by the time you've got to know them, it's too late mm. because they might be thinking the opposite of you. They might be thinking, what have I got to do to convince this bloke that, or this woman that I'm all right? Mm. And they think, oh, do you know what? Stuff them. It's hard work. It's hard work. <laughs> yeah. It's too hard work. It's, every time I tell them something, he's not interested. Now I see things differently because, as I said to myself, a long time ago, tomorrow's another day, but but is it? Is tomorrow another day? It wasn't for me. Tomorrow for me, then my life changed mm. completely. So when I meet you now for the first time, standing in front of me is just a person. As God intended me to see you, just as a person, a non-biased, non-prejudiced, non-racist, non-sexist person, you're just a person. You start off with my, I'll give you a full tank of love and respect. You've got to discern that now. Mm. So as long as we carry on as we are, I'll trust you implicitly. I'll love you forever. Then you'll start to knock it off by mm. telling me a little porky or I don't know, what, whatever it is that takes trust away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's made me look at the whole world differently because I'll love you now from the minute we meet you, the minute I meet you or the minute we meet each other, should I say. Mm. And then going forward, I won't lose you then. So it's, it's a much more positive way of viewing people then, you say? Most definitely. Right. And that's not that's not how you were before. So although, obviously, we, we'll, we'll talk briefly about the fact that, you know, you have had a successful transplant now, and we'll touch on that in a minute, but we're kind of jumping forward yes. here because, I, I, and this is important because I want to, I want to see how, how you are now as a, as a person, how it's changed you, because you were this mentally strong person who was sporty, still is incredibly sporty, competitive now you're saying as well as having that you've now become this much more on a personal level a more positive person viewing people differently and seeing life in a different way yes Mm. yes that's i think without an illness all the cliches that tomorrow's another day um live for live for today you never know what's happening tomorrow and stuff you know you never know what you, you could get hit by a bus today and all the rest of it they're all great things to say to someone who's feeling low and feeling down and as and a pick you up, you know, just to show them that there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's another mm. one for you and all the rest of it. Until you've been there, they mean nothing. Mm. They're just words. You know, we hear, hear every day people saying, you, you can talk the talk, but you can't walk the walk. Um, and we can all talk the talk when our mates are feeling low because their partner's left them or they've lost a job or the car's blown up or whatever it is. We've all been there with our friends but you do know what tomorrow brings you, mm. possibly, mm. God forbid. But we all should know what tomorrow brings you. It might bring a little bit of adversity, but it won't necessarily bring that life change that the light just goes off. Mm. And for me, that's what happened, that the light went off. Now, I know that the monkey that I carry with me on my back is I could go into renal failure tomorrow. It could all happen again. This time next week, you could come back and see me. I could be back on dialysis. It can happen that quick because the toxicity just just rockets. Mm. So I know that 
while I do expect tomorrow to be tomorrow, there may not be tomorrow again. I may be in that different place again. Does that cause you stress? No, <clears throat> but it did. And it's that's, that's very apt, that is, because I met somebody recently and we've been having very similar conversations. She's had a terminal illness um, and she she's she's on the other side she's had a surgery she's been fixed if you like and her cancer is gone so she, all she needs to do is just take her medication for the complications that have been left with the surgery but pretty much hers is gone mm. done now people have said to me but yeah but you're fixed well, i'm not fixed because if i stop taking my i carry a different burden i carry the burden that any my renal failure can can will continue with me until who knows it could be a week it could be a year it could be 10 years so that's what i carry with me now post transplant i suffered between months three and nine i suffered with ptsd i didn't realize i was suffering with this mm. i had a terrible fear of failure as in the kidney failing, and it seemed, the only way I can explain it, the analogy that I use is, an, is a glass-fronted lift. And I was standing on the edge of the lift, and I was looking out of the window down. So we started on the ground floor, and we went up a month, we went up a level. And then as each month went by, I just got higher and higher and higher. Mm. But the drop got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I started to be afraid I almost got to that stage that the surgeons explained it as getting to the stage where it's working now. I'm past 10 weeks, so the last stage. I'm into no man's land now because I don't know how this is supposed to feel. Not only is it working, but I'm working as well. I've started to run again. I've started to go to the gym again. I've started to play football again. I've started to do the things that I used to do. Mm. So now I am fearing failure. And I'm thinking, well, when is it going to come? And the renal team said, this is normal. It's normal. And when they said to me it was normal, it was like, oh, that's right. I'll just, <laughs> I'll, give the, I'll give the ticket, guide my ticket. I'll just sit and wait for it to go. Then I'll just endure it again. I'll just get through it. I've got some darkness and there'll be some light. I know it's coming and I'm so strong now. Just hang in there. Just hang in there. Mm. Just hang in there. And I think that, that that is what I did all through it. I worried about my money. I got a big job. Um, I was operations manager for a distribution company. With a big job comes a big salary, comes all the trappings of, of, of that lifestyle. How, how do I survive now? I used to worry about when I was at work, before the the, the illness, the next holiday, the, the plan for the car, the savings account, the pension and all the rest of it. I don't know how how it managed to consume my life, but it does. And I think most people maybe listening to this can, can appreciate that. Mm. They're, they're doing it themselves right now. I haven't worried about a thing since I've, once I got to grips with it, never thought about money, never thought about a car, never thought about a holiday. They just seemed to happen. Mm. They just seemed to come along and, and, and present themselves without any form of planning, without any form of worry. Mm. And that's also what's made me where I am now. There's no need to worry about stuff. The more you worry about stuff, you, before we turn these microphones on, you said, do you remember what you said to me? You said about somebody, somebody adopting too much space. Oh, right. Okay. Taking yeah. too much time. Yeah. And somebody said to me recently, I think it was only two days ago, that I said to her that 
she needed to let go of this person. Once you let go, you afford them freedom. If you keep hold of them, and then she interrupted, she said, I know exactly what you're going to say. You give them too much space in your head. They rent space off you. And they're both the same analogies. Mm. Once, you set, once you set the person free, or whether it's the, the lifestyle free or the, the anchors that hold you down, whether it's the job and the planning, the financial stuff, once you let them go, you can still keep an eye on them. But you set yourself free to think about other things, to think about tomorrow, mm. to appreciate the life that you've got today, mm. to to spend that moment with your son or your children or your dogs or whatever it is that 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 makes you happy. Spend it with them mm. because they're not going to appreciate it while you're working out next month's books. So easier said than done. Easier said than done. Unless you've been through unless something. You're that... pre- unless and, and and there's a little bit missing from this. I was in intensive care twice after the first transplant and they, they did that re- that they did that angiogram when the professors were there. Mm. I went back to the ward and I thought it was warm. I thought I was sweaty, but unbeknown to me, the angiogram hole had leaked, but this was into the, the, the main artery and the groin. I was, I was covered. The bed was covered in claret. Um, I remember, I remember talking to the people on the side of the bed. I was talking to him, Glint, but I wasn't saying anything. It was bizarre. I was having a conversation with them, but they said you just passed out on the bed. Mm. And then I woke up. I woke up in the high dependency ward. And um, so, yeah, but when you've... Um, when you've had the reaper sitting next to you, yeah. it's um, twice, and you do appreciate today. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So well, here we are now. We're sat mm. here. Okay, you are. You've had a successful transplant. Now you know you you don't know the person. No, nope. you know that they're out there. This is a, a living donor. Yes, who's uh, who's basically allowed you. They've done the, the, the ultimate gift. Mm. They have donated one of their kidneys, not wanting to know who to yeah. and have any contact with you. And here you are now. Mm. You know, looking crazily healthy. I've got to say, <laughs> I feel positively unfit looking at you now. <laughs> Um, competed in because uh, when we first when we met up a while back now a few weeks ago yeah. you'd just competed hadn't you in yes transplant games the transplant games yeah doing the you know was, you did well, some the, running and- well, the initial goal was um, we live in Staffordshire and local to us is a place called Chasewater it's a reservoir love that place uh, it's five kilometres in circumference and it's used by local runners to run run around mm-hmm. Lovely picturesque um, walk, run, cycle, whatever you want to do. So my goal was within the first anniversary of the transplant to have completed a lap around Chasewater. To some of the runners out there, 5K is nothing. Considering that I've never run in, for five years I've been strapped to a bed. As a bodybuilder weighing 17, 18 stone, the only thing I could run was my bath. (laughs) Um, So for me, this was massive. Yeah. Not long after I decided that that was the goal, the the date for the British Transplant Games was announced, which was August this year, 
he was in Birmingham um, and I thought well that's it then that's the goal that's the target as soon as I decided that on it went the light went on competitor lit up winner train <laughs> everything lit up it was like you know when you hit, he's back yeah you, you, you know you know that um that um that thing at the fun fair with the big rubber mallet yes yeah, and yeah, yeah smash yeah. it and it goes it hits the bell and it goes ding 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 ding, yeah, ding. Yeah. that's what it was and i was back in competitor mode and it glint it felt good <laughs> it felt good from a different perspective so yeah. i thought right what's the biggest race mini marathon it was called 5k put me down for that and they said that i could also enter four more events so i thought well after that i need events that don't involve a lot of running <laughs> so one was the shot put there's 100 meters there was the long jump and the high jump the renal team said i couldn't do the high jump in case i landed oh, the awkward contortions yeah. and yeah so i did the 5k um my run times before the event were 24 minutes on the day, it was 28 degrees. I did it in 26. I was happy, completely achieved my goal. The rest of it was just a bonus. Mm. It was in the Alexander Stadium in Birmingham. I was able to go trackside, be the same place that Usain Bolt had been in and Daly Thompson and all the rest of them yeah, that had yeah. been in there. It was great. But the only thing I could do was the shot put. My legs had seized up. I couldn't walk. It was ridiculous. So I thought, shot put it is then. Hadn't picked a shot put up since I was... 13 I think yeah so um I didn't even know what I was supposed to do with the shot put do you warm up do you stretch do you just chuck it chuck it (laughs) so I thought well obviously training and knowing muscles and how they work I thought about what muscles are going to be used there so I thought I better warm them all up so I did my little circuit everything was warmed up um the distances last year were 11 meters something 10 meters something nine meters something for third place no idea i'd never picked one up before so i had no idea where i was going to go first one went seven meters 50 i thought well okay everybody else went and i'm sort of in i had no intention of competing here this was just to do it mm-hmm. i thought well at least i'm not going to make a fool of myself then because i'm around dropping about. it by your feet or anything yeah, like that. I'm re- yeah. yeah that's what I thought I didn't know if I was going to throw it and end up hitting myself on the knee or something <laughs> so I thought well, okay I'm, I'm here that's alright and I just thought if I can just improve each time I'm happy with that for myself so the next one everybody went and then um, I think the guy in front of me he did something like nine nine ten or something mm. like that I went and I got eight 8.50 I think I thought bonus I mean I'm in, I'm, I'm, I've improved by a metre and a bit that'll do for me so they all went again the the guy who, who ultimately won it won it again he's got something like 11 metres something the second guy was from Ireland he did 10 metres something now the guy before me was in joint third place with a port Spanish guy they were both on 9 whatever it was just short of 9.20 I think it was Actually, I think they were on 9.20. The first guy went, and he did 9.19. Then it was me. Don't ask you why I did this, but I just thought, I think I'll crack this. I've watched them all do it. I picked the ball up. I kissed it, and I said, fly for me. (laughs) Don't ask me why. (laughs) And I put it, and it went 9.39. Now, it didn't look to me. I wasn't, and because I wasn't 
interested in competing. I'd taken no interest in anybody else's score. Walked back to this guy and um, he said, you're third. <laughs> now, this guy that was in front of me, unbeknownst to me, a friend of mine who um, lives in Burntwood and works in Burntwood, he's my barber. And he said, he's a judo instructor. And he said, I was a mate of mine competing in transplant games, shot put, righty, righty, right. Turns out to be this guy where he's also a judo instructor. Very competitive boy. 42, quite big and bulky. Looks cauliflower ears and all the rest of it. And um, this guy who'd been talking to me for the last 15, 20 minutes just walked off. <laughs> Talk about competitive. <laughs> he said, you've only got that guy to go. He said, and then if he doesn't do it, you're, you've, you're third. I thought, well, if I'm 9.39 and he's 9.19 or whatever it was, it's only 20 centimetres. And if he's like a, seemed to be a seat, I thought that's in me done, you know, pack it, throw my water yeah, bottle yeah. in the bag and stuff. 9.20 and I'm thinking, what? So there I am, third. Alexander Stadium, third place in the shot put, bronze medal. Um, stand on the podium, have the pictures taken and the ceremony and all that stuff. And then I get approached by a guy who's one of the coaches for the Team GB at the World Transplant Games. <laughs> Invited me to be part of Team GB. So um, It's a bit of a change here, Nathan. <laughs> You've gone from being talking about lifting five plates, feeling like, you know, then you're four, feels like five, three feels like five and so on, and then going through all that. And then here we are, you know, only a few weeks ago now and complete euphoria being spoken to by about Team GB for the World Games. I mean, it's one hell of a ride. A friend of mine, his name's Neil Stanley. And he said to me, Stan, or, Stan competes as well. He competes uh, in the BMBF. He's just competed a couple of weeks ago. And when I told him, he said to me, he said, you know what? He said, it was fate. He said, because you're a brother of iron. He said, as soon as that iron was in your hand, there was only one place that was going. So for, thought, for those listening who don't know, the BMBF, British National uh, Natural Bodybuilding Federation. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously the Brotherhood of Iron is what, yes. what us gym rats would refer to us. <laughs> yeah. Obviously ex-gym rats yeah. refer to us ourselves. I, I kind of remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he said that was, that, was, it, that was fate. As soon as you put the steeler back in your hand. There you go. It was that. Well, it's, I, it, it's been a... An emotional ride again. You know what I mean, it's a huge thing that you've gone through. It's a huge thing to share. I'm I'm glad that we're back in touch. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's happened because of me seeing your posts or what, but you know, bottom line is we're here together. We've rekindled a friendship of forty something years. Um, but it has been a very different episode. This one. This is like I said at the start. Nothing that we've got out there at all on the podcast. But I just think it's a really relevant thing for us to talk about because illness is real but also it's the mental state of mind that really yeah. intrigued me because you can translate what you've been through in some way to other people going through other things that they feel that they cannot ever deal with and mm. that's the end they've reached the end of the road and so on and so forth when you're faced with something that is terminal and you can still come through it mentally then they're pretty much it sounds corny doesn't it but there's hope for everybody isn't there I don't think that it has to be an illness because at that moment in time, whether we have an illness or not, or we've just got a dilemma, it's terminal for us. It changes the way we think, mm. whether it's an illness, whether it's a redundancy, whether it's a death, whether it's an accident, whatever it is, whether it's, there is always 
a change in the the chemical balance in the brain that changes the way you think. You get that fight or flight syndrome. There's lots of analogies that we can use here now. But there's there's just one path that you need to, or, or one phrase that you need to remember. And that's what got me through it, is that from great darkness will always come great light. You just have to endure. Now, it doesn't mean that when you're told what you're told, there's a positive outcome to it. Because let's be blunt, some illnesses result in death. But that endurance and that darkness, once you're told there's death, there is great light. Because you can then enjoy what's left. You haven't got to worry anymore. Your family haven't got to worry anymore. They will worry if you're passing. But you haven't got to worry about anything anymore because you know where you're going. You know where the journey's going to take you. The same with redundancy. It may look like the end of the world at the minute, but you will get a job. You might not get a job. You might make self. You might become self-employed. Mm. You might win the lottery. Who knows? But at the end, trust me. If you're listening to this, trust me. There will be something positive at the end of this, and it may not be what you thought it would be, but it will never ever be the same as it is today. Mm. Wherever you get to, I'll guarantee you, will not be the same as it is today. So just just endure and remember there was always great light after great darkness. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a great place to call this a day then. Mate, thank you so much. No worries. You're thank a you. top man. Cheers, mate.